Amen. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3 as you grab a seat. Uh, I think we just hit on a really important uh, timeless truth from God's Word and and from who God is right there. And that is, is it's really good news for you and for me uh, that our circumstances are not the final determiner, uh, determination of whether or not God is good. Uh, that what we experience on this side of heaven in the midst of a broken world that is broken because of sin, um, that we can look around at all kinds of things and see all of the different ways that maybe life is not good. And yet in the midst of that, there is a God who is not shaken, who is bringing all things to their right end. And we can hold to him in confidence. Um, and that's an incredible uh, truth when things are good, but it's an even more incredible and important truth when things are not good. Um, because when things are not good, that is when the temptation is to think, maybe I've looked in the wrong place. Um, but this morning, as we turn to Matthew 3, uh, we're, we're coming back to, this, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew and going to be reminded in a way of, of the good news that Jesus brings, the kingdom that he initiates, uh, that, is, uh, that is the theme throughout Matthew's Gospel. Uh, that the king uh, that brings salvation has arrived in Jesus, and his kingdom isn't shaken by what we see in the news. It's not shaken what we see when we go visit the doctor. It's not shaken when we see uh, the events of life. His kingdom stands firm. In fact, Jesus later in the Gospel of Matthew says that the gates of hell will try to prevail against it, and yet they will not achieve their purpose. The, the gates of the kingdom will stand. Uh, and that's an incredible truth uh, right after Christmas. Maybe there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of a spiritual letdown after Christmas, right? Like hype up to Christmas and then after Christmas, big breath, and, and life seems like it's just trying to catch up. Um, and, and yet what we're going to continue to see in the Gospel of Matthew is, is that Jesus is good in every season. Um, in, in the first two chapters of Matthew, as we've started in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we've looked at uh, kind of the, the early infancy and birth narrative of Jesus, and then uh, the running away from, with Joseph and Mary to Egypt, and then the return to Nazareth. And then in, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, there's a, like a 25-year jump forward. Uh, so for, for most of Jesus' life, there is no record of what is going on because he is in obscurity waiting for the Father to reveal him and for him to begin his public ministry. And, and so what we see today in Matthew chapter 3 is this public revealing of who Jesus is and the beginning of his ministry that begins to take shape in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it also makes, Matthew chapter 3 makes a distinct transition in some ways from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament kingdom of God that's ushered in through Jesus. So in Matthew 3, we see the last, the last prophet God uses to his people Israel as he initiates or transitions this initiation of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus. Uh, so we're going to look at all of Matthew 3 today, verses 1 through 17, and dive right in and, 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 and look at it then, and then see why it still matters today. In those days, starting in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear of good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Matthew jumps into, in in chapter 3, Matthew jumps right into the narrative without providing details that you and I might go, that would be kind of useful. So if you came to this for the first time, and you had never heard Matthew 3 before, you started reading in the New Testament, started in Matthew chapter 1, you come to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, and you go, who in the world is John the Baptist? Right? Like, we might take for granted, we've heard this before, and we go, oh, I know exactly who that is. It's spelled out more in Luke's gospel in Luke chapters 1 and 2, but Matthew just jumps right in and says, hey, you, you guys, who, the people that I'm writing to, they know who this guy is. And Luke spells it out because his audience didn't know maybe who John the Baptist was. So to fill this in, Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. In, in Luke chapter 1, we find out that Ze- uh, John's parent, or parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both Levites, which was from the tribe of Israel that were all priests. His dad was, in fact, a priest that, that was going to the temple to offer sacrifices and, and to do the annual things that were done. And when he goes in, uh, he and his wife Elizabeth had not been able to have children, even though they were advanced in years. And when he's going into the the temple, he comes face to face with an angel. Now you talk about one of those, if I were a fly on the wall moments, like he's just going in like, let's go light incense, right? And angel of the Lord says, hey, you and your wife who are, you're both old, you're going to have a child and he's going to be a special child because he's going to pave the way for this anointed king, this anointed savior for Israel. And, and to make it even more strange, uh, the, the angel says, to confirm what I've told you, you're not going to be able to speak until this comes about. So for nine-ish, ten months, Zechariah cannot speak. And all he's been told to do is to say that the kid's name is to be John instead of Zechariah, which is what it should have been because it was his anyway, family name. Right? So then uh, when John is born and he's not yet named and everybody goes, what's his name going to be? They look at Zechariah and he asks for something to write on. He says, the kid's name is John. And they all argue with him. And he's like, no, the kid's name is John. And then pff, he can speak. Right? 
weird, weird, like, if you're talking about like a family reunion where everybody talks about their children and the way they came about, like, interesting thing, right? And then Luke also records that Mary, after she finds out that she is going to, uh, to bear a son by the power of the Holy Spirit, she goes to help Elizabeth for the first three months of, of Mary's pregnancy. She's with Elizabeth. And as soon as Mary comes into the room, and Elizabeth hasn't had her baby yet, Right? As soon as she comes into the room, John leaps in the womb. And, and like that would be a great name for a band, like leaping fetuses or something. Right? Like, like, like the baby, like, like and, it, and it's, it's different than just like a turn, like where a kick, like this, something like would be normal, right? Like it's, it's marked down in scripture that John jumps in the womb and recognizes that something spectacular is like going on. And then Luke makes the point that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb all the way through his life, which is really strange because in the Old Testament, that really wasn't the case where people were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would come upon individuals. It would come, the Spirit would come upon David or it would come upon the prophets and they would speak. But there wasn't the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people yet. That's fast forward to Pentecost in Acts after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? So John is this, he's the cousin of Jesus. He's been filled with the Spirit. He is now all of a sudden, Matthew lays out in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, here is John the Baptist, now grown up in the Judean wilderness, preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Which is an interesting message, twofold message. It's interesting for one that John is marked by being the one who baptizes or the baptizer. Because if you read through the Old Testament, baptism, the way that we see it now, is really not like it's not a prevalent theme in the Old Testament. It, it, there's, there's not a lot of instructions for how to baptize or, or when to baptize. If you think about the Old Testament law, it's not something that is in there in the same sense that you, like baptism is central to what we do in, in almost every expression of the local church. Denominations aside, baptism is something that we all have an understanding of. And yet, for the early period here of the New Testament, this is not something that was all the way common. It was even less common for somebody to be baptizing other Jewish people. The one, the, the, like in this time frame, the people who would be baptized were God-fearing Gentiles who wanted to come and join God's people, the Israelites, in faith. Like They would be baptized like a, a bapti baptism of conversion almost, like the, to mark their conversion out of a Gentile life of, of, of following some other God, some other religion, and coming into God's people through the people of Israel. So it's really strange that John is in the wilderness calling Jewish people to repent and be baptized. Furthermore, it's kind of interesting that not only is he saying repent, but he's saying repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is imminent. Now, you and I might be, again, this might be a phrase that we're familiar with, the kingdom of heaven. We go, oh yeah, the kingdom of God. That sounds familiar. That's a spiritual kingdom that we live in because we've, we've, we've placed our faith in Jesus. But for we step out of this, what does the kingdom of heaven mean when John is in the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You remember that these people are waiting anxiously for God to restore the kingdom of Israel. They are waiting anxiously for him to raise up an offspring of David who will drive out the Romans and reestablish the glory of David and Solomon. And here comes John out in the wilderness preaching 
repent for the kingdom of hand is at hand, or kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, Emily, there's a map up here for you, just because sometimes we talk about regions and it doesn't really mean anything. So John is probably down here in the wilderness or up here in the wilderness because of the Jordan River. He's up here in Judea. Jesus, remember, he and his family went all the way up to Galilee, up to Nazareth. At this point, you go, well, what about that one guy we talked about last week that forced Joseph and Mary to go north, Archelaus? So in 6 AD, we didn't talk about this last week, 6 AD, he got exiled by, he got kicked out, deposed by Caesar, and got sent to France. So now it's just Herod Antipas and Philip, his brother, that are ruling this area. But John comes out preaching in Judea. Jesus is still up in, in Galilee. And uh, so John is in the area of Jerusalem and Judea, and he comes preaching a message of repentance. And it would be important for us to probably define repentance before we get too far into this morning. Because we might think of, of, of repenting as being a change of mind, right? Where, where I, I have a wrong way of thinking, but, the, the, but repentance rightly understood is not just a changing of thinking or a remorse for action, but it's a change of behavior. It's a change of action. It's a reversal, of course. And so sometimes we, and the reason why I say this is important for us to understand is we can feel guilty or shame because of our sin before God. We can feel like we can know that it's wrong. We can feel guilt that we've done wrong. We can even feel shame that we've done wrong. And we might say that as soon as I recognize that I feel shame or guilt, that I have then repented. That, that, that it's just the intense feeling of conviction is what we'd call that. When, when there's a recognition that I have done what is offensive to the Lord because of my sin, we go, well, that's, that's repentance. It's when I realize that I feel bad about this. Well, and that's really only the first half of repentance, right? And in order to change course off of something, you do have to understand that it's the wrong course. But the second part of changing course is actually changing direction and taking steps to go in a different direction. So repentance, rightly understood, is turning away from our sinful pursuit of self and turning towards the Lord in faith-filled obedience, Right? And so when John is saying, repent for the kingdom, of hand is, uh, is, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is laying out for the people that are coming to hear his message, he's calling them away from sin and towards the promises of God. And it's interesting that that is tied to the fulfillment, another fulfillment for Matthew, this time Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, that God would send one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But I want to just then take you to Isaiah 44 and 5, which is the next step off of this quote that Matthew gives. He says, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I really want you to, you're going to want to hang on to verse 5 as we, as we move forward this morning. But there's also, uh, there's a, a, another fulfillment that John does, which is of Malachi verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It's the closing promise of the Old Testament. So the last Old Testament prophet who came and spoke to the people of Israel before 400 years of prophetic silence 
offered these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So at the close of the Old Testament, the close of, of, of the Old Testament prophetic ministry to the people of Israel, there is promised a prophet like Elijah who will come and Isaiah 40 fleshes that out even more, who will prepare the way before the Lord. So here you have John the Baptist out preaching in the wilderness, calling people to repentance, and telling them the kingdom of heaven is imminently close. Now what's not maybe surprising then, if you put yourself into the, the early first century uh, Jewish population around Jerusalem and Judea, is that verse 5 all of Jerusalem and Judea go out to see this guy. What is going on? There's a prophet out in the wilderness telling people the kingdom is close. Right, also interesting in verses 4 that he's, he's dressed like a prophet. Wearing, he's not wearing fine clothes. In fact, later in Matthew, Jesus asks people, what did you go out to see when you saw John? Did you go to see a guy in soft clothing? No, he wasn't a guy born in a palace, but you went out and you, saw, you, you went to see a prophet, one who was speaking the words of God. And all of Jerusalem and Judea go out into the area, they go out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So, positive note, a bunch of people from the area all are going out, confessing their sins, recognizing their sin before a holy God, turning in repentance and confessing their sin, preparing themselves for the kingdom of heaven. Then the negative note. There's a group of people that come, starting in verses 7 and going through verse 12. The first group that John will protest their baptism, or them being at his baptism. Verse 7, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I don't know, maybe some of you do, but how many of you would love to come to church on Sunday and for the person to just yell at you, You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes? Man, some of you are like, I just missed it. That was the old time. Like, I loved that. Like, but then everybody like, I don't really want somebody to say that to me. That's, whew. And you know, it's really like, why is John reacting and speaking this way to people who are coming out to see what is going on? And then another question that might be important to us is, who in the world are Pharisees and Sadducees? Because never heard of those guys either. They don't show up in the Old Testament. And then boom, Matthew chapter 3, there's a group from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I don't know who these people are. Have you run into one before? And you might go, I've, I've, I know Pharisees. Like, not in the classical sense of like a guy who lives in Jerusalem and tells you what the law of Moses means. Like, you don't know that guy, right? You might know somebody who's legalistic in their approach to religion and, has, and you give them the title of Pharisee. But we don't interact with Pharisees and Sadducees every day. So quick, just a quick, this is like a thousand foot, three thousand foot, just primer on Pharisees and Sadducees. They pop up in the interim period between, again, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, the Pharisees were linked more to the synagogue, which if we step back and go, what is a synagogue? Because again, we're not Jewish, we don't go to one. I hear they meet on Saturday. Outside of that, don't know. 
right? The synagogue popped up in Jewish culture around the time that the, the uh, people of Judah were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And the temple was destroyed. The people were scattered across the kingdom of Babylon and then later the Medo-Persian Empire. In order to preserve the teaching of the law and to preserve their culture, they established the synagogue, which was the place where they would meet and they would teach God's word. And they would, they would like, so it became almost like the local church, if you want to say that, because there wasn't a temple to go to. And you think about this in the scope of the Old Testament, they always had the tabernacle or the temple where all of their religious life and practice flowed into and out of that place. So because they were scattered to all of the four winds, not having a temple, the synagogue becomes the place where they, they meet centrally, they teach the word, and they, they instruct themselves. So the Pharisees become kind of these local leaders of the synagogues. Um, but in, in, in addition to teaching just the word and laying it out and explaining it, they are known for, especially in the New Testament, they're known for adding a whole bunch of extra biblical requirements in order to follow the law. So and it, they, they begin to add extra laws on top of the law in order to try to help people be godly. But because of that, they're really good rule followers and pointing out where everybody is missing the mark. They're, 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 like, they're, they're just keyed in. When you, if you read about them throughout the rest of the Gospels, whenever they interact with Jesus, they are constantly trying to nitpick at the law and say, yeah, see, See, he failed. To, to anybody and to everybody. And then the Sadducees, they were more temple-oriented, so the temple was rebuilt uh, when the people come back. It's marked in the book of Ezra. And then Herod added to the temple, rebuilding it. And the Sadducees became the wealthy priest class who were ruling the temple, and they were kind of in cahoots with the Romans. And they only, for them, they only used the, 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 five, the first five books of the Old Testament or the Torah. So later on, that's why they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels. Um, and and they're, they're kind of more, what we would say is like, they're, they're more theologically liberal in a sense. But both of them are marked for their hypocrisy throughout the New Testament. And that doesn't mean that every member of both of these groups was automatically hypocritical, but all of the ones that are interacting with Jesus, for the most part in his ministry, are marked by their... Uh, Jesus tells them that they, they know the Word of God but deny its power. In other words, like they're, they're really familiar with the things of God, but they're actually opposed to God's work in and through it. And so when they show up to the baptism, it's kind of interesting that the translation could very well be read, and probably accurately so, that they came to observe the baptism, not coming for baptism. They were coming out to see what is going on and to, and to, to legislate whether or not, in their view, it is a right thing or a wrong thing that is being done. And so John's message to them all of a sudden begins to make sense when he says, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you need this. You, need, you are the ones that need to repent. In addition to all these people. So they might look at everybody else and be like, good, that guy's finally repenting. Good for him. I'm so glad we would never do that. Where we would look at everybody else and say, I can see where you are screwing up. You should really fix that. And John is telling them, don't you have enough sense to see what's happening? And, and even to say, the, 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 
He, he, in two ways, lays a really hard message to them. One of the, well, two, two aspects to this hard message. One of them, in verse 9, he says, don't presume to say, well, Abraham is our father. In other words, he is saying, don't think that where you were born and your family tree automatically assumes that you are righteous. So for the people of Israel, this would be a long time struggle in the New Testament. Well, we're the people that God made all of these promises to. We're fine. And so why Paul in Romans will say not all, of the, not all of the Jews are Jews, or not all of Israel is Israel. Not all keep his promises. Not all do what he says. You see the root of that starting in Matthew chapter 3 already. He says, don't, don't presume to say Abraham is our father. Your spiritual, and, and this could be even tricky for you and for me, don't assume that your spiritual heritage automatically means that you have come into the kingdom by faith. A phrase that, that I ran across, again, I'd heard it before, but I ran across it again this week, and it's, it's profound in a sense, and it shouldn't be that profound, but it's this. God doesn't have grandchildren. When people enter into a right relationship with God by faith in Jesus, they are adopted in as sons and daughters. So every person who comes to faith in Christ into a right relationship with the Lord is adopted into the family, but they're all adopted in as sons and daughters. They're not adopted in because mom and dad are in the family. So for us, our family, we have six children. For each one of them who places their faith in Jesus, they are equally sons and daughters in the kingdom with their mother and I, which upsets like the way that we think about family life and all the other things, right? Like they are co-heirs of the kingdom with us. Like we are not more co-heirs than they are. We're not more inheritors than they are. They are equal inheritors of the kingdom if they enter in by faith. And what John is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees is don't presume that you're in the kingdom just because you come out of Abraham. Like, your spiritual lineage isn't, like, it, it might bring you close to the kingdom, but only faith in Christ brings you into the kingdom, right? Like, count yourself infinitely blessed if you grew up in a family that, know, that knew Jesus, knows Jesus, walks with Jesus, and brings you close to Jesus. But be careful that you don't think, well, my mom and dad have a really solid faith, so I'm good. Our, yeah, our family goes, like, our family goes to church. Our family believes in Jesus. Be careful, your parents might very well have a right faith in Jesus, but that does not mean that you ride in on their coattails. They're bringing you close, but it's only, that's between you and the Lord. And we might, and, and this is the tricky part when we grow up in and around church, is we can detect theological accuracy maybe, but lose the heart of faith that's connected to it. Like we might understand what is right theology and wrong theology. We might be able to be able to understand what people teach wrongly about who God is. We might be able to teach and understand rightly what people teach wrongly about who Jesus is. But those things are not the same as a right faith in Christ. So by all means, know the right things about who he is because of what his word says. But if it's disconnected from a heart of faith and a heart that responds in faith, we'd be lumped in with the same message. Don't presume to say, 
Well, that's my parents. He goes so far to say that God is able to raise up from these stones to raise up uh, children for Abraham. In other words, like, hey, the, 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 the inheritance and the, the family tree is important, but God can, uh, he's more concerned with the right heart of faith that responds to him in repentance and faith. And then the second aspect of this hard message is that he goes, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is right after he has just told them, bear fruit that keeps with repentance. He just told them, in other words, your fruit is bad. In other words, your tree is no good. And because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that means that you are not in a place of really good, confident trust. You ought to be in a place of great spiritual concern. And then he goes on to say that there's one coming behind him who's greater than him. But notice what he says in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. The, the, the coming of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 3 is, is, is a two-part thing. It is in, in one part great joy to those who respond in right faith. But at the same time, it is a, a day of great trouble for those outside of right faith because it is a day where righteousness and unrighteousness are separated. And apart from Jesus, apart from a right faith in Him, the horrible truth or the horrible reality of Matthew chapter 3 is that apart from Jesus, in and working in and through our lives, through His Spirit, my fruit and your fruit is rotten. Apart from Him, Jesus says we can do nothing. And what that stores up for us at this imminent coming of the kingdom if we're outside of this right relationship of faith to Jesus, is an expectation of right, holy judgment. And there is no neutral territory between in Christ and outside of Christ. The imagery that he uses, the, the axe being laid at the root of the trees, to put it in this, into northwestern Montana speak for us, the finger is on the trigger. It is imminent. It is at hand. And we might would think, I have so much that I want to do before giving my life to Jesus. There's things I want to do with this life before I give it to Jesus for the tail end to make sure I'm okay. And John is saying, be careful. Be quick to repent and to turn towards Him in faith. You don't have the time you think you have. The coming of his kingdom is imminent. It is at hand. It is close. And when it comes, it will be joy for those who have a right faith in Jesus. It will be horror and terror for those outside. Because at that moment, when he returns, bringing a right salvation and a right judgment, hand in hand, for the righteous and the unrighteous, we will we will be given exactly what our life in the flesh deserves. We might would look at, at John's message in Matthew 3 and go, well, that's, that seems harsh. And yet the offer of salvation is clearly given. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's joy in salvation. 
But it's not nothing on the other hand. It is separation from the God who created us to know Him and to walk with Him. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus will characterize it as a place where the fire does not burn out, where the worm does not burn. Like It's a place of eternal torment because our sin is that horrendous before a holy God. And for that reason, John is calling out in the wilderness, and it's the same message that Jesus will pick up in, John, in Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sinful, selfish ways and follow him in faith. And at the same time, John points towards one who's coming who's greater than him. In verses 13 through 17, John protests baptism a second time, but this time for different reasons. When the Sadducees and the Pharisees come, he protests their presence because they have a wrong heart and a self-righteousness that comes to the river. But then when Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan, verse 13, to be baptized, says John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. What are you doing? This time John protests, not because he doesn't think Jesus deserves or that Jesus is non-repentant, but he says Jesus has no need to repent. And John recognizes that he's the one who is in need of what Jesus provides. And what's interesting is when you throw this together with John chapter 1, we're given a second layer of purpose in John's baptism. One is, is preparing the way, uh, getting people in a, in a right heart for the kingdom to be initiated. But then it also, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is the day after he was uh, dialoguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And notice verse 31. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Remember what Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5 said. With this coming of this, uh, the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. In John chapter 1, he says, this is the reason I came out, that the Son would be revealed. And Jesus argues with him. John says, you know, I, I, this, this is backwards. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And it's a curious case of why Jesus insists that John baptize him. Because we recognize the word teaches that Jesus was, was without sin. There's no need for like, you. If, you, if you've never done anything wrong, there's nothing to repent from. Right? If we've never violated God's righteous command, there's no need to turn away from it and turn towards God in, in faith-filled obedience. So it's a curious thing of why Jesus impresses on John that it's important that we fulfill all righteousness. And I, I ran across another quote this week, Craig Blomberg uh, that I liked, and he says, in, in fulfilling all righteousness, we might think of it in this way. It is completing everything that forms a part of a relationship of obedience to God. Let me say that again. It's completing everything that forms a part of a relationship of obedience to God. 
So in his baptism, Jesus is displaying publicly for all to see his obedience to the Lord in all that he's done. He's also simultaneously validating the message that John is preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now what's different is that whenever any other person went out to be baptized and they went in the water and out of the water, nothing spectacular happened. But in verse 16, when Jesus goes into the water and out of the water when he was baptized, it says immediately he went up from the water and behold, there's the magic word again, red caution lights, right? The heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I want to take just a a minute and, and dissect that because uh, there's, there's a bunch of, I think, again, harmful views of this um, statement by the Father over the Son. Because some would wrongly see this as the moment in which God the Father adopts Jesus as the Son. But the Word clearly teaches that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Through, like Colossians chapter 1, through Him, for Him, by Him, all things are made. Nothing was made that was not made through Him. He's eternally in fellowship with the Father, taking on flesh. And so then what does this phrase mean? If it doesn't mean all of a sudden now he's adopted, what does it mean this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? And again, we think about how does it happen? It happens publicly. The Spirit descends visibly. The voice of the Father speaks audibly. The Son rises out of the water and people see him. And maybe an image that would be helpful from the Old Testament is think about the anointing of a king in the Old Testament Israel. Think of when Samuel went to anoint David, right? He anointed him with oil, but he did it in front of his family, right? It wasn't just in quiet. It's like when the king was anointed in ancient Israel, what happened? They brought him to a public place and they, they, they identified him publicly. I mean, think about all the, all the second. After 25 years or more in obscurity, the glory of the Father is revealed in the Son, and this Father makes him known and brings him out of obscurity, and now we're going to begin his earthly ministry. The time in the backwaters of Nazareth have come to a close, and as we move forward into Matthew chapter 4 next week, and and Matthew, uh, in in the chapters continuing on, we see Jesus beginning to teach and to preach, to heal, ushering in the kingdom that he is bringing. So a couple of, of, of just quick takeaways for us, some things to continue to wrestle around with and, and toss around your mind this week. One would be, do I have a right view of repentance? Repentance is not just a one-time, oh yeah, I, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and we're done. Repentance is an ongoing recognizing that, that, that there's a constant bend in us towards our sin and ourself. And repentance is that constant turning away from self and turning to the Father in faith through faith in Christ. Is repentance a normal part of our lives? Are we, are we actively turning away from self and turning towards the Father by faith in Jesus? Or... Do we express sorrow over sin, but there's no change? Do we express grief? Like, do we feel bad 
that we know we've violated God's right commands, and yet there's no turning of action. Are we actively keeping in mind, looking for, living in light of the kingdom that Jesus has initiated through his death, burial, and resurrection? Does the fruit of our life reflect the faith that we express? Right? The, the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, there's like the, 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 in, in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus talks about abiding in him. Those things bear fruit in our lives. And it's no more possible for you and for I to just sit here and go, like, do good things, do good things, do good things, and then poof, they just magically appear than it is to sit there and expect a plum tree to produce grapes. If our lives are not in Christ, there's no way that we will bear the fruit that keeps in godliness. So if it's lacking in our lives, it's not just a matter of you just need to try harder and do better. What it is is you need to turn away from yourself and turn towards Jesus in faith. And when you're walking with Jesus in faith, he produces in you the things that he desires. It's not, so, so please hear me, this is not, hey, you need to clean up your act for the new year. Starts tomorrow, right? New Year's resolution. If you are not walking with Jesus, you're not going to produce the things that he desires. And so it really is kind of elementary, simple, and yet it's the hardest thing that you and I will do this side of heaven, which is to consistently turn from ourselves and turn to Jesus in faith. This is the ongoing, like, like if that was your New Year's resolution, people go, oh, that sounds easy, you did that once. Like, remember when you, turned, like, when you placed your faith in Jesus, you did that. You're done. But you and I know the struggle of day in, day out, turning from ourselves and turning to Him in faith. Is that the pattern of our lives? Not just sorrow, not just grief over wrong that has been done, not just trying harder, but walking in and resting in his finished work and letting him do his work in us, and then submitting to it and being obedient to it. 